Good morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. If you are a longtime listener to this program and have been following Jew in the City for a while, you're aware that we're an organization that breaks down stereotypes about Orthodox Jews. When I founded Jew in the City, um, I guess it's going on nine years at this point, nine years ago, the idea originally was to rebrand orthodoxy to the non-orthodox population, to the non-Jewish population, to show people who hadn't experienced the beauty and the normalness of the orthodox community and show things from our perspective beyond the bad headlines, beyond the you know, over-the-top caricatures in TV and movies. What ended up happening over the course of this uh, journey is that we started hearing from a lot of Orthodox people. We started hearing from Orthodox people who were continuing to live an Orthodox life, but had never somehow seen the beauty of Orthodoxy and Torah, observance and Torah learning um, on, you know, as they experienced it. And we even started to hear from people who had left Orthodoxy, who had left an observant life, but the way that we were presenting Orthodoxy was so much more appealing and so much more engaging than what they had experienced in their own lives. And some of them were even telling us that they wanted to kind of find their way back with our help. And so that sort of the last part of this piece um, is what caused us to launch Project Makom a couple of years ago for people in the ex-Haredi community or who were currently in the Haredi community but who were unhappy there and looking to find a different place in observance that fit better. Um, the orthodox phenomenon is really all over, you know, the Jewish news these days. Um, we hear about it in the general news. There have been tons of best-selling memoirs that have come out. All that we've done to try to get positive PR and positive coverage for orthodoxy here at Jew in the City does not compare to how willing the traditional media is to cover negative stories of people who had extreme childhood and, you know, abusive childhood and dysfunctional experiences. Um, you know, those people that write those books, and they are varying degrees of, uh, you know, writing quality, I would say. Some of them are very well written. Some of them, even in their own community, um, seem to call them out on inaccuracies or not being such great writing. But the media is oh so happy to cover that. And so um, this author phenomenon has really gone even beyond just the Orthodox world. It's something at this point that I think um, the entire world has experienced. Um, there was one woman who was talking about the Afaderach phenomenon before I think it was really on anyone else's radar. I'm not exactly sure when her book, Afaderach, first came across um, You know, my... Uh, when I first saw it, I'm not sure what I'm saying there. When, when I first noticed it first, but I believe it was a number of years ago, uh, right across my radar. There we go. It first came across my radar. Um, my mother-in-law had the book on her coffee table when we visited uh, for a, a holiday many years back. And she told me that it's fascinating. And part of me kind of didn't want to see it, didn't want to see the horror stories or the negativity of what was going on, of what was pushing Jews away from Torah. And so I sort of pushed off uh, from reading it uh, for a while, and then I kind of came, once I saw how big this phenomenon was getting, I realized that it was time for me to face this and to buy a copy of the book myself, and I did, and I was entrenched. Um, and it has actually changed how I've raised my children. Um, I've, you know, spoken to lots of people about it. And today we are so fortunate to have the author of the book, Faranak Margulies, with us here today. Faranak, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Thank you for having me. So you wrote this book, I believe it was back in 2000? 
Um, it was in, it actually came out in 2005, I believe. 2005, got it. Uh, about uh, 10, 11 years ago. But your, your research for the book began five years earlier. Is, am I correct on that? Yes, it did. It did. Got it. Okay, fine. So that's, that that's was my right. It took me about five years. Sorry, it took me about five years to do all the research, to interview people. I put up a web survey. I interviewed lots of experts, psychologists, historians, teachers, therapists. Um, and it took about five years to put all of that together into a book. So it took quite and a while. So just in terms of your own background, which you discuss in the book, so you're from a Persian background. Uh, you're the great-granddaughter of the uh, former chief rabbi of Tehran. You grew up in Los Angeles, went to Eula, Stern. So it was a traditional household, but you became um, an observant Jew somewhere along the way. Yeah, I would say my family was a little bit to the right of traditional, and they were definitely traditional enough to care about sending me to day school. And um, I went to Yeshiva Day School from a pretty early age, and I had a Jewish education ever since. So they were a little bit to the right of traditional, I would say. And um, I personally did become more observant over the years, and so did my family, actually. Um, we Nowadays, we are a little bit, we have four children in my family, and we're all slightly in a different place on the spectrum, but uh, we're all definitely connected, and um, and I would say we all took our parents' upbringing and the education we had one step further, so. And so, but then you had, even though you became, you know, a more observant Shomer Shabbos, you then um, left observance for a while, or you had a negative experience or experiences that pushed you away. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about kind of when and why that happened? Yeah, um, I did have very positive experiences throughout my life. In day school with my family, um, I had excellent teachers. There was a lot of joy and curiosity about uh, traditional Judaism in my house. And I was very fortunate in that way because I got an excellent foundation. And when I went to Israel to seminary for a year, I started to have some more negative experiences, which I was not expecting. And it a little bit, um, I wouldn't say compromise my observance, because throughout the year, I ended up becoming more and more observant. But my attitude became a little bit more negative than it had been otherwise, primarily towards Orthodox people, rather than to living an observant life itself. Hmm. Um, and I, I did remain observant. I went to Stern. I stayed religious for a number of years. But I was single, living in Manhattan, things became a little bit challenging. All the friends I had around me were raised in observant homes, but they were not observant anymore. And I found myself in an environment that was really quite difficult to hold on to what I wanted to hold on to. And I knew that one day I would come back, and I would keep Shabbat, I would keep kosher, I would raise a religious Jewish family. But in the moments where I was, it definitely became challenging. And so I did drop it for a while, and then I eventually came back again. So you say in your book that um, you decided to write this because you were noticing all of these friends that you had growing up did drop out of observance. Is this something that is a newer phenomenon? Because, I mean, it's certainly something we're talking about right now. Was there always the OTD phenomenon for the last, you know, many thousand years of, you know, Jewish existence? Or has something changed that this has become more popular? Um, I think for the vast majority of our history, uh, we were basically a religious, um, we were religious communities. For the most part, people were halakhically observant. The numbers who were not were really too small even to be counted. 
And that's how, if you were to define the vast majority of Jewish history until today, you would define us as basically being halachically committed to living a Jewish observant life. But since the Enlightenment, things started to change a little bit. Um, the entire world changed in terms of its philosophical perspectives um, within a very God-centered world. Now we live in a very man-centered world. Um, reason has replaced faith as kind of the arbiter of what is right and wrong, what's good for us, what's bad for us. And there's much greater exposure today to ideas which can be challenging to Judaism, to behaviors that can be challenging to Judaism. So since the Enlightenment, we really started to see more and more of this. And um, that is, in a sense, a new phenomenon, because although there's been moments in Jewish history where there's been more freedom and there's been more exposure, um, there hasn't been quite such a long time period of it where there's openness, there's acceptance, there is, compared to Jewish history in the past, much less persecution, and we're now seeing greater assimilation because of it. And um, I do think in that sense it is something new, if you would consider the last 100 or 200 years a, a recent part of our history. I do think in that sense it is new. And um, it's really changed completely. It's redefined the character of the Jewish nation um, definitely outside of Israel and even inside of Israel. Um, this is like the first time, I think, in Jewish history where 90% of the Jewish world outside of Israel is not halakhically observant, and it's never been like that before. Hmm. And it usually starts with the one person who takes a step away from living an observant Jewish life um, with the best of intentions and the best of reasons, but in an open society that challenges um, Judaism and challenges living an observant life, that one step often translates one, two, three generations later into intermarriage. Mm. And um, so that first step can really, you know, really, really has redefined um, the Jewish community and the Jewish nation as a whole. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking like there's sort of two pieces to the off the derech phenomenon because there's all these memoirs that have come out recently and there's Footsteps, which is an organization that helps people, you know, leave the ultra-Orthodox world. But I mean, in my own family... I, you know, my grandparents and great-grandparents essentially went off the derech as well for various reasons, whether it was because they were trying to, you know, make it in America and felt like keeping Shabbos was too difficult to make ends meet, or I had a grandfather whose brother died of leukemia at a young age, and he said, God is dead, and started eating bacon. So I guess what you're saying is that really this is how we got to this point of 90% um, non-observance and, you know, a more assimilated thing, but... This more recent trend, it maybe is it the rise of the internet, or is this more recent trend possibly that we're seeing it more from the Haredi community? Is, is that a difference? Because there seems to be this is a very popular topic now in our community. Wouldn't you agree? In the last like maybe ten years or so, um, I think it's perhaps becoming a greater and greater issue because um, the openness that we're confronted with and the information that we are we have at our fingertips because of the internet, it has kind of infiltrated our world. You could try to put up walls as much as you want, but whether or not you like it, all you need today is a smartphone, and you'll be exposed to a great number of ideas and, um, and all sorts of different elements in the outside culture, which become a part of your own and need to be confronted and need to be answered and need to be dealt with. And if, if we're dealing with that by putting up walls, um, and as opposed to strengthening our Judaism from within, 
we don't have the tools necessary to confront the challenge effectively. So um, that could be a reason why. This actually segues into my next question now. So what, what do you think is, is the solution? Not that we can, you know, say it, you know, al regal ajas, but sort of some general ideas about how we can combat this problem. Is it in our homes? Is it in our schools? Probably both. Um, it's definitely in our schools and in our communities. And I think the greatest issue and the most important place to start is by meeting children's emotional needs. Um, when we can create happy children who feel loved and secure and safe in their environment and whose exposure to Judaism is loving and safe and secure, uh, we will be more likely to create kids who are observant. When any of those basic needs are met, having nothing even to do with religion, just our general emotional needs, it creates a real obstacle to living a religious life. Mm -hmm. And until those needs are met and dealt with, we can't move on to see religion as a positive thing and to incorporate it into our lives in the meaningful way that it's meant to be. So the greatest thing that we can do is taking care of our kids primarily in our homes, but also in schools and in communities, to ensure that they have those basic emotional needs met. Um, and I spend a lot of time discussing that in the book because it's quite complicated, what that means and how you do it and the different things that can compromise it. But um, that really is the greatest place to start. And once we do that, we can... Hello? Oh, sorry, yeah. Sorry, once we do that. Once we do that, we can start addressing other things like what our kids believe and why and how we can strengthen belief and what the tools are that we can give them to be able to ask the right questions, find the right answers, and really develop the kinds of faith and belief in God and the Torah that they should have. You know, as you're saying, um, address the, I love that part of your book, address the emotional, emotional needs first. Um, I kind of heard this in a different way from one of my rabbis in seminary. I attended uh, Midrash Rachel many years back, and I thought I'd come up with a very tricky question for my Rav, and I said, if the Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself, what if you hate yourself? So then, you know, does the Torah command you to, you know, unlove your neighbor as much as you unlove yourself? And he looked straight at me and he said, he said, Allison, the Torah is meant for healthy people. If you're not healthy emotionally, it's not going to work. And it was really a huge, um, you know, I mean, like, I guess I always knew that, but he saying it like that really made it very clear, which is why, you know, even as we're working with the community within Project Makom, we want to make sure that people are at a certain level of sort of emotional stability before they experience, um, uh, you know, get involved with spirituality because we feel like they need to have that sort of baseline of happiness and stability before they can go into the, the spiritual route. And look, I've learned a ton now about this community dealing with kind of the ex-Haredi community, not as much with the modern Orthodox community because I feel like um, when the modern Orthodox community goes off the derech, it's not as big of a jump. It's not as extreme. And to come back is maybe not as hard. And I think we have seen people who have seen our content and experienced um, observance in Torah in a different way have kind of on their own found their way back. Are there any trends that you noticed in the, you know, during your research, during this five years of research, common things that push the modern Orthodox people off versus common things that push the um, uh, ultra-Orthodox Haredi population off? Or would you say both of it is that lack of sort of love and, you know, sort of stability in, in their upbringing? I think that the emotional issues are universal. 
Mm-hmm. Um, every child has fundamental needs um, and particular needs emotionally, but fundamental needs that are really the same across the board in all the different communities. The issue that creates difference between the communities is that um, environments create different obstacles or different tools, basically, for being able to be observant. So in the Haredi world, the closeness, which can help protect Judaism in a lot of ways, can also work as a double-edged sword and create issues. You know, for example, if we stifle questions, which in the Haredi world, any kind of um, deviation from communal norms, not even necessarily Torah norms or halakha, but communal norms and conventions can be problematic. And you don't have that as much in the modern Orthodox because it is a more open society. On the other hand, the modern Orthodox are walking in two worlds, and it's very easy to choose one over the other. And especially, and I think we do find this a little more in the modern Orthodox world than in the Hasidic communities, is that Torah observance is not passionate and kind of all-encompassing, and it doesn't really infiltrate your mentality and how you think about the world, and it's not a very strong part of who you, when you're walking into worlds, it's easy to choose the other. Mm -hmm. So you don't see that as much in the Haredi world, because they're not walking into worlds, and because they do have a much more all-encompassing experience with their Yiddishkeit. So there's definitely differences, or... Oh, sorry, what do you say about about differences? There's definitely differences between the communities and the different challenges that they face. Some are universal, like the emotional needs, but yeah. some are very particular. And wh- where would you say abuse plays in? Because that's obviously, you know, a, a huge way that someone's emotional needs would not be met. But did you find that people suffering from some sort of sexual or physical or emotional abuse, were those numbers as high as you expected, high or lower? I haven't looked at the actual numbers of people who have been abused and um, the extent to which that's caused them to go off the deck. But it is absolutely clear that any kind of abuse really compromises a very need to feel safe and secure and loved in the world. And it often results in the most extreme kind of, um, I don't want to say rebellion because I think that has a bit of a negative connotation, but an extreme reaction to living an observant life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that oftentimes in the Hasidic communities, when you see someone who's leaving, you might see issues like that more because the price you pay for leaving an observant life in the Hasidic world is so big that it really takes a huge motivator for someone to be willing to deal with the consequences. Mm-hmm. And uh, something like abuse is that kind of motivator. It's just yeah. so basic and so painful that it can become almost impossible to stay in the environment that you're in and, um, and continue to live any kind of healthy life. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a huge problem. I don't know how prevalent abuse is. It's, I think it's something that's probably very difficult to measure. Yeah. But when it does exist, it can cause greatest form of going off the deraf, and it can cause great bitterness and anger towards religious people and also to God. It, it's a huge issue. And did you notice any trend in the children of Bali Chuva or families where they start off more modern and move to the right? Because, you know, this is not a scientific study that I'm quoting now, but within our Project Makom community, we certainly have noticed that there is a higher number of people whose parents did not grow up Hasidic or, you know, either because they were much more modern or secular. They tried to enter the community. The kids never quite felt like they integrated and so they kind of got spit out again. Was that anything that you came across in your studies? 
Yeah, definitely. The Baltimore community has its own set of challenges, which are very unique. Um, in the first time, some, in the first place, sometimes um, Baltimore can be a little bit more um, stringent with their expectations yeah. on their kids. Yeah. They sometimes don't have a feel for the nuances of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. So they can tend to clamp down on all things in an effort to kind of, you know, maintain religiosity. Whereas people who are born into it can be a little bit, um, first of all, they understand the nuances better, and they can tend to be a little bit more flexible sometimes. But the issue of this second generation of their children is a big one, because Baruchiba can understand why they might go into a Hasidic community, let's say, and not be accepted the way um, somebody who was born into it is. But it's much more difficult to understand why their children are not. And oftentimes their children are not. Yeah. Sometimes, I know here in Israel, sometimes their kids are not accepted into the same school because the parents are Bali Chuba. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're not as well accepted in the community. And that, again, it, it leads to a basic emotional issue, which is that the children are rejected. And they're rejected as a direct result of their Judaism and where they are in the spectrum and where they came from. Mm-hmm. So not only traditionally and not get their need to be accepted and love met, that's happened because of religion. So it makes it all the more likely that they will respond in a religious fashion or in an irreligious fashion um, to that kind of experience. So there, there were so many, I mean, I just, you know, dog-eared so many pages within the book. One lesson that I took into my home with my daughters who are now uh, 10 and 12, you mentioned a story where the father is pretty strict about the daughter davening, and every day he demands that she davens in the morning until she just starts lying to him that she davens. And she says this is kind of how it began, by being dishonest with him, by him having these high expectations and her not having the ability to choose. And so right after I read this, it was summer was coming, and it was kind of time for my kids, my girls, to start davening on their own at home. And I decided to make them a chart and I said, basically, this will be, you know, up to you now. Like, I would love for you to daven. I'll give you a reminder. Um, if you decide to daven, you'll get some sort of a reward. We'll have something that will get you, you know, to kind of celebrate at the end of the summer. But you'll be the ones that decide to do it or not. And I think they uh, certainly appreciated, um, you know, kind of having more of that choice. Um, do you have any stories of people who had left, who had had the negative experiences and read the book and then came to you and said, this helped me better understand what pushed me off and now I want to reclaim, you know, Torah in a more positive way? Um, I did. I definitely had people who said they felt understood for the first time, mm-hmm. which is an amazing thing. Um, I don't know that a book can address some of the main issues that cause people to go off within themselves. That's really work that they have to do for themselves. So I don't know if those people did come back as a result of um, reading the book, but I have been very satisfied to hear that there have been many parents who have considered things like what you just said and changed the way they were going to raise their kids and and do it in a little bit more way, which especially as kids grow into teenagers becomes very, very important. So I'm I'm very thankful that I think it did have an impact that way. Because we all have a role in making things better for our kids religiously, and I think these small things can make all the difference in the world. Hundred percent. I, you know, as someone who creates content that hopes to impact how people think and feel, but has a hard time of knowing exactly how these, you know, the things that we write, the videos we put out, how they impact people. I'll give you just a piece of nachas. Um, a few years back, um, I was asked to speak to a, you know, a, a young single woman who had gone off the derech. Her family was very upset with how things had turned out, and I was listening to her and. 
so much of what I read in your book kind of helped me in talking to her. And she was feeling that lack of being loved and accepted for who she was aside from her religiosity. And I recommended that her parents read the book. I recommended that she read the book. And I found out recently that she is observant again now. And I believe, you know, her parents being able to understand her, you know, because of what you wrote and her sort of seeing it in this framework um, made a big difference. So um, that was just something that happened recently. And it, it was, it made me, you know, happy to know that I could give that over. And I, I really would recommend, you know, everyone listening today, everyone that has a child or who's planning to have a child, anyone that's in Jewish education, um, the information that it's actually painful. Some of these stories are so painful to read about. I remember one of them that really um, got me so upset. There was a girl who had watched a movie. I don't know if it was a bad movie. Maybe there were boys there. And the next day, the teacher walks in the principal of the school and talks about that there's a smell in the room, there's a stench in the room because of this girl, because she did something bad. And um, it's, it's so awful how um, these things can you know, affect our children if we're doing the right things in our home, um, you know, if bad things are happening in school. Do you think, are we getting better? Are we getting worse? <laughs> like, what, is there hope in terms of the situation? Where do you think we are since you wrote this book in 2005? Uh, I do think that uh, things do seem to be getting a bit better. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at the statistics in terms of the various age groups, um, both in America and in Israel, actually, um, the older generation seems to have a much higher percentage of people going off. And the younger, you know, the let's say 20 to 30s versus the 50 to 60s, the percentages are going down. So that, that is, there, there is cause for hope. Um, you can attribute that to many different things, but um, it does seem like the trend is getting better. Uh, at the same time, I think the issue of kids at risk might be getting a little bit worse. Um, the issue of teenagers who are developing not only anti-religious behaviors but anti-social behaviors, um, that seems like it might be getting a little worse. Mm -hmm. But um, it's very hard to know with these things because we don't really have very clear numbers. All those studies that you look at all depends on how people are defining themselves as opposed to the objective standard that we use of and kashrut. So it can be a little bit tricky to define, but it does seem like overall uh, things are getting a bit better than they were. Well, Maybe we're getting better at learning how to deal with the issues. I think even just talking about the phenomenon and being educated about it and being aware, um, because it's true, I, I mean, I think that from the emotional side, um, you know, with the reality of, you know, having two parents working in most households and that causing just a certain amount of distraction and having everyone on their devices all the time and that causing a certain amount of distraction and all the things that kids can get to online when their parents aren't noticing and distracted mm -hmm. on their own and kind of the damage that could cause um, is very troubling. but. Um, I think the more that we talk about it, the more that we're aware of these issues and the more that we have open communication with our children. I hope uh, things will, you know, uh, get better and better. Well, thank you so much for literally writing the book on this topic and for your insight and for taking the time to speak to people, you know, who, who went through this so we can better understand it. And um, you can get, um, where can they get it? On Amazon, off the direct by Faranak Margulies. Um, it's uh, yeah, really you can get it on Amazon and... And uh, very soon, hopefully, maybe in uh, October, November, we plan to put out the Israeli edition of the book, which, we, which will be uh, translated into uh, Hebrew, and it will be in English and in French as well. So um, that will incorporate all the different issues that exist in Israel, which may not exist outside of Israel. So anybody who might be interested in uh, knowing the differences in the phenomenon or anybody who lives in Israel raising kids here, um, hopefully October, November time, that one, that version should be out. 
Excellent. All right. Well, we will definitely uh, remind our readers and our, our fans again uh, in, in November. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for joining us, and thank you for listening. You can catch us same time, same place next week. Thank you, Allison.